We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Wonderful congregation, that's great. Good singing, Matthew 13 and verse number 57. Now, I'd like to read, beginning with verse number 53 uh, in, in Matthew 13. Most of you that are students of the Bible recognize that in Matthew 13, we have the seven parables of our Lord uh, given. And these parables have to do with the period of time that the parable calls the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is synonymous with the church age, uh, with the age of grace or the age of the spirit, the age in which you now now live. So far as I'm concerned, the whole period from Calvary uh, to the second coming of our Lord is described and set forth in symbol and type uh, and in prophecy by these seven parables. And by the way, we have also a similar uh, reoccurrence of the number seven in Revelation chapter two and three. In those two chapters in the Revelation prophecy, we have uh, the seven churches, one, two, three, right down the line, seven of them. And in the chronological order, as they're given in Revelation 2 and 3, they cover the same period of time that we call the kingdom of heaven, or the age of the church, or the age of the spirit, or the age of the gospel of the grace of God that we now preach. From Calvary down to the second coming of our Lord. Now back in the Old Testament days when the prophets of God looked out through and into the future as Isaiah did, we studied about Isaiah in our lesson today in chapter 38 of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, as great as he was, and there's no debating of the fact that Isaiah is one of the great uh, prophets of the old Bible, uh, failed to see the church age. Now, Isaiah saw Calvary and described it minutely in several places of his prophecy, namely Isaiah 53. And Isaiah also saw the second coming of our Lord in power and great glory and described that minutely in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, and some other places in his prophecy. But Isaiah failed to see the church age, and he's not alone in that. I don't think any of the Old Testament prophets really saw the church age as we now see it. Looking back, we see this 2,000-year uh, this period and we recognize also from the New Testament that God foreordained and planned that this age of the church be a reality from the foundation of the world. Now, one of the mysteries of the Bible is the fact that God did not reveal the church age to the prophets, though there are certain types and symbols uh, in the Old Testament relating to this particular time. But I question whether the prophets themselves really knew all the symbolism that they wrote about in the Old Testament relating to the kingdom of heaven. But our Lord knew, and of course, the Lord knew and wrote these seven parables in Matthew 13, having to do with what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And one of the most interesting studies in all the Bible is these seven parables in Matthew 13. Now I've been preaching on the Bright Spot Hour daily about these parables now, having begun this week. And I'll be speaking on these seven parables for several weeks on the radio, and I invite you to be sure to tune and hear the programs day by day as I deal with these parables one at a time. But we read in verse number 53, And it came to pass 
that when Jesus had finished these parables, when he finished deliberately giving these seven parables, I don't think that these parables were given by accident. I think they were given by godly design and by godly appointment. I think these parables have a definite message relating to this age in which you and I now live. And when the Lord gave the seven parables and finished giving these parables, he departed thence. Having finished this particular task, he turns and departs thence. And when he was come into his own country, now his own country, of course, is Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee, and that immediate area around about Galilee. Now, Galilee in the geography of Israel is about 50 miles from Jerusalem. In your mind, if you can think about Jerusalem, uh, there about the center of the modern state of Israel uh, is the city of Jerusalem. 50 miles north, about 50 miles north of Jerusalem is the Sea of Galilee. And that's the Galilean country. Around about the Sea of Galilee, you have uh, Bible cities. Tiberias uh, is uh, on the shores of Galilee. That was a city, a, fisher's, a fisherman's village in the days of our Lord. Capernaum, which seemed to have been the home city of Jesus our Lord. His mailing address, so to speak, uh, when he began his public ministry, would have been Capernaum of Galilee. Then you have several other cities around about ancient Galilee. But Nazareth, a few miles away, Nazareth, I would guess to be about 15 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Cana, where the Lord performed his first miracle, is between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. And uh, so in that in general area, you have, that's the country of our Lord. He departed unto his own country. And being in his own country in Capernaum and Tiberias and Jehorazim and Bethesda and Cana, and uh, Nazareth, he went into the synagogues and taught the people, insomuch that they were astonished. Now, to me, that's a, that's a tremendous thing about our Lord. Uh, he'd already begun now his earthly ministry, as you well know. In fact, he's a long way down uh, the road in his earthly ministry. By the time we come to this uh, 13th chapter of Matthew, the Pharisees have already broken with him, and they've already taken counsel together, and they did in chapter number 12, how they might destroy the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord has the Pharisees and Sadducees now hot on his trail and opposing him every move that he makes. Man, he, when he goes back to his home country, after giving these seven parables, he goes into the synagogue. And he begins to teach and to preach and to instruct as a rabbi there in the, uh, in the synagogues one after another. If you ever go to Israel, you visit the ruins of the Capernaum synagogue. Whether that is actually the synagogue our Lord no doubt spoke in is questionable. But the ruins of an ancient synagogue remain until this day in Capernaum of Galilee. One time when we was in Israel, uh, there is an ancient little synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, the synagogue is made of stone and has a stone floor and a stone roof. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not large, about the size of our choir in our church, I guess. It has no pews in it, but it has a pulpit and, and a lot of uh, decoration, ancient decorations on it. Uh, we would, uh, I guess, call it a, a fine building as far as architecture is concerned, but an ancient building. And when we were there, we were told that this could have been 
uh, the very synagogue in which our Lord might have taught in Nazareth of Galilee. We don't know for sure, but we went into that little synagogue and stood on our feet, no seats, we stood up and we sang, uh, uh, when we all get to heaven, we sang Blessed Assurance, we sang at Calvary, and then uh, Dr. Waters opened his Bible and read uh, from the gospel story about Nazareth, uh, the very section that we're reading from now, uh, as we stood there in that little synagogue in Nazareth of Galilee, where our Lord read up as a boy. Now, when he went back up to Nazareth, he went into the synagogues. And by this time, the fame of our Lord as a speaker and as a preacher and as a rabbi uh, had spread throughout all of Israel, no doubt. And I'm sure that many Jews came into the synagogue to hear Jesus, the young rabbi, uh, take the Old Testament, expound the Old Testament. And I'm certain that there's never been a teacher in the Old Testament or New Testament that could ever expound the Bible like the Lord Jesus did. I'm sure of that. Now, nothing thrills me more than uh, to hear a man break the bread of life and take the, uh, uh, the Bible and preach the Bible line by line and precept by precept and verse by verse, word by word. Brother Melvin did that Wednesday night and did a good job in Ephesians chapter number one and two. And I enjoy that. I thrill to hear the word of God broken like that and, and given to me where I can assimilate it, you see, and digest it and enjoy the bread of life broken and handed to me. But there's never been a person, preacher, whoever he might have been, in any age, I'm sure, that could so handle the word of God as did Jesus, the young rabbi, Jesus, the Savior. And he went into the synagogue and began to teach. And he taught in such authority and with such skill and with such uniqueness until I read in verse number 24 that they were all astonished. They sat all stricken, their mouths open, so to speak, drinking in every word that came from the lip of the Savior. They were astounded that this young man who had been reared up in Nazareth from the time he was just a boy about his mother's knee, now a young man just past the age of 30. But oh, what a tremendous personality he is now. And some of the older ones in the synagogue could well remember Jesus playing in the streets. And I say that reverently. Or Jesus in the house of his father, foster father Joseph, and his mother Mary. They could well remember the other boys, three other boys and sisters that were born into that family who were half-brothers to the Savior. They were acquainted with all of that. They knew Joseph by name, by first name. They knew Mary by her first name. And they had known Mary before she ever conceived and brought forth her firstborn child, I'm sure. And so this company of people seeing Jesus, 30 years old, speaking with greater authority than a man whose hair is gray and whose shoulders are bent by the weight of the years. And they're so amazed until they're astounded. And in their astonishment, they say, whence hath this man this wisdom? And whence hath this man these mighty works that we hear about? Well, we don't understand it. What did he learn this, they're saying? How did he acquire such skill in the word of God to be able to handle the scriptures as we now hear? They were astounded at the ability of the Savior 
in breaking the bread of life, they were more astounded by the mighty works that he reported in their midst. And not only did he report them, but I'm sure that his mighty works were reported before the Lord ever spoke in that, in that Nazareth synagogue or Capernaum synagogue. They'd heard about the great things the Lord had done. Or earlier in chapter 3 of Matthew, why Jesus had not only done great things himself, but he sent out his own 12 disciples two by two. And he said, I give you power to heal all manner of diseases and heal uh, leprosy and to raise the dead and to cast out demons. He said, freely you have received, freely you give. And his 12 disciples went out doing the same miracles that our Lord had done himself. And the fame of that, no doubt, had spread throughout all of Nazareth. And the people are astonished. And they're saying, where in the world did this uh, Nazarene get this kind of authority and uh, uh, power to do these mighty works that we hear reported about? I guess that astonishment would be a natural thing. You know, all of us have a bent to take some people for granted. Uh, I think sometimes we, we have a bit to take our own children for granted. Uh, they've always been at our feet and we somewhat sometimes take them for granted. And I'm sure that we have the temptation to take our own children, our Sunday school children for granted. If we could see, now you listen to what your pastor is about to say. If we could see right now the potential for God and for the gospel that is in these young people in this congregation now, I'm sure that we'd be utterly astonished at what lies beneath the young bosoms of some of these boys and girls that sit right now in this auditorium. But they're just a little sandy-headed boy to us, a little golden-headed girl to us, and we take them for granted. We don't uh, we sometimes attempted not to pay them much heed and much attention. That's folly. That's foolish. The power and the dynamics of the church tomorrow is on these pews right now. And it's folly for me and you to take these young people for granted. God help that we not do that. And I'm sure that these, these are, are Nazarene people. When they saw the Lord Jesus Christ, 30 years old, remembered back when he was a barefoot boy, remembered back when he played in the streets of Nazareth, they remembered the, his brothers that are named in verse number, number 55, James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas, four of those boys. They remember those boys. And then the girls that are mentioned in verse number 26. I don't know how many uh, was in the family of Mary, but at least seven. Mary had at least seven children in her line. Now, Jesus is the firstborn. All of us know that, and born miraculously. But after the Lord was born, there were four boys born, and their names are given in verse number uh, 55, and there were at least two daughters born. Because the word sisters is in the plural, that means more than one. So, uh, at least seven children Mary produced in her lifetime. And all these people in Nazareth knew every one of these children and knew the Lord to be the oldest of the seven. And they said, we don't understand what happened to this young man. He's not a boy anymore. He's not a sandy-headed lad anymore. 
He's standing up with the scrolls of the Old Testament in his hand and speaking to us with authority and power with words that we've never heard before in our lifetime. And they were astonished at the things that they'd heard and the things that they saw from this young preacher, from the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ in his hometown. Now, there's a, there's a great deal of lessons at that point that we need to learn. And I wish I knew how to say uh, the lesson to my own soul. I don't want to take anybody for granted. I don't want to take any young person for granted. I, 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 the old pastor, I've told this in the pulpit, but it il illustrates what I'm trying to say. The old pastor that baptized me, preacher G.B. Lee. Some of the older ones might remember him. He's been dead, oh, I guess 15, 18 years. But old preacher Lee, I was with a funeral, on a funeral with him one day. And he, was, he and I were conducting the funeral, and he was old and feeble at that time. And he took, took me by the arm and leaned on my arm as we walked from the hearse to the church. And as we walked up, he was a little short fellow, about five, six, or seven. He looked up into my face and said, uh, Son, of all the boys I ever baptized, you were the last one that I thought would ever preach. And he wasn't insulting me. He was telling the truth. Uh, he, he uh, I guess, like some of us, take young people for granted. Now, I didn't know when he baptized me that I'd be a preacher either. Now, I'm not blaming him one bit. Uh, he was telling the honest truth of his heart. And I knew exactly why he said it. And I'll always love Preacher Lee because he baptized me. And I appreciated him. Of course I do. And I'm not being critical. I'm simply giving his honest observation of me. As if to say, I never thought you'd have been a preacher. And I understood why he said that. Because I wouldn't have thought so either. I didn't plan to be a preacher either. Now the same thing is so. And I'm not saying that every young boy ought to be a preacher. But I believe every young boy ought to be a Christian. I believe every young girl ought to be a born again child of God. Whether they ever serve the Lord full time or not. They ought to be born again and saved by the grace of God. And have faith. And sometimes we miscalculate. And we misjudge the young people around about us. And let's not do that. Uh, within every young bosom there is potential. Now it's my duty as a pastor to seek to develop every young person I come in contact with. And I, I delight to do that. I thrill to do that. Sometimes here at Tabernacle we've, we've taken young people and put them in uh, as teachers in our Sunday school. And maybe somebody... I would question the wisdom of that. And, and, and there are times, no doubt, when that wisdom ought to have been questioned, I suppose. Oh, we've taken young people and put them on the deacon board, young men. And some of the older ones might have said, I question the wisdom of that. And there might have been times when we made mistakes. But nothing thrills me more than to take a young man or a young lady and put them in our Sunday school faculty and see them begin to grow. I'll take a young man and put him on the deacon board and see him begin to mature. Nothing thrills me more than that. And I think it's our moral and spiritual duty to develop and to encourage every young person we have in our church and not jump to conclusions about them. Give them an honest chance to demonstrate what their, their abilities are. And believe me, some of them have great abilities, great abilities. They're diamonds in the rough. They only need the opportunity uh, to demonstrate their abilities to do things to God's glory. Well, this community were astounding. And we're going to see 
that they were not so kindly disposed to the Lord as I suggest to you. And that's the tragedy of my sermon today. I, I hate to say so, but we're going to read the next verse. If we could stop reading at verse number 54, the picture would not be so bleak and dark and tragic. But if I read on into verse 55 and following, we're going to see some of the saddest things happen you ever saw in your life, humanly speaking. And that's what I'm trying uh, to instill in the hearts of you in our church now. Let, let's don't uh, predispose ourselves or prejudge our young people. Let's don't come to a, a premature conclusion about our, our potentials that might be on these pews today. I think it'd be unwise to do that. Now look at verse 54 again. These Nazarene people said, Whence hath this young man this wisdom? Where in the world did he get this? Whence hath this young man power to do these mighty works that we hear about? And then they go on to say, Is not this the carpenter's son? As if that was a crime and a shame. Is not this the carpenter's son? Now here, you, here the tragedy is beginning to unfold. Here the folly of these Nazarene people is beginning to be evident. Why, this is the carpenter's son. Now, if he'd been the banker's son, or the millionaire's son, or the college president's son, I wonder if they'd have said that. I think sometimes we follow the same line and the same logic in our thinking. A young man, a young lady rise up and begin to develop and to excel and to do things for God, we discount them by saying, well, uh, uh, that's Mrs. So-and-so's daughter, that's Mr. So-and-so's uh, son. And we discount them as if to say, shut, sit down and shut your mouth. We know where you came from. That's wrong. That's as wrong as it can be. And I don't want our people to be guilty of that. But these Nazarene people said, why, this is the carpenter's son, Joseph, the poor man that works with his hands to make a living, that lives over here and uh, has not much of this world's goods, and, and this is his boy, standing up here in the synagogue, teaching with greater authority than any rabbi we've ever heard. Is not this the carpenter's son? And they go on to say, uh, is not his mother called Mary? We've known her all her life. And is not his brethren, James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas, these four boys that still run the streets here, they're all younger than the Lord. How, much, how many years younger than the Lord? I don't know. These, the girls might have been born first. They might have been still little fellas. Might have been teenagers. These four at this particular time, the Lord was only 30 years old, about 30. And it could have been these two girls got born first. And they are pretty good sized girls. Maybe they are marrying now. Maybe they're in their 20s. And these four little boys, brothers, half brothers to our Lord, could have been uh, these uh, uh, teenagers, these aggravating teenagers. And so this crowd said, his four brothers are with us. They're around here also. And, and this boy teaching, why his four brothers are out here playing in the streets and courting our girls. And it uh, couldn't be anything much of that. Uh, he couldn't be much. Are not his brethren with us and his sisters? Are they not all with us? His sisters, his whole family is still in Nazareth. Whence then hath this man all this wisdom? 
Where did this man get all this authority? Oh, fools, it's slow to heart, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said about the Savior. How foolish these Nazarene people were not to recognize that Jesus Christ was not just a brother to Simeon and Joseph, but that he's the divine Son of God, miraculously born. Don't you know that they'd heard about that unusual birth? Am I jumping to conclusion when I suggest to you that they'd already made up in their minds that they didn't believe that miracle birth? These Nazarene people had heard about it. They'd heard about how Joseph carried his wife down to Bethlehem and while she was there had a child, then sojourned in Egypt and after a while brought that child home and they'd heard about that miraculous birth. But I have reasons to believe that they had concluded that was all a sham and nothing to it. And now this one that they'd heard about who had a virgin birth is teaching and preaching out of the scrolls of the Old Testament. And they said, we can't believe it. We just can't believe it. Why, his mother's Mary. His father's Joseph. His four old brothers are still with us. His two sisters are still here. When the world did he get this? If they'd only believed what the prophets had declared, but they didn't believe it. Now here's my text. Verse 57. And they were offended in him. Now that's just about the saddest thing you've read in a many a day. They, the Nazarene neighbors, the Nazarene people of the city of Nazareth, among whom our Lord was read up as a lad, as a young man, and to whom he preached early and first the gospel of the kingdom, didn't believe it. And they said, we are not accepted. And they were offended in him. Now that's tragic. Now, there are three things about that text I want to point out to you, and I'll read verses, uh, verse 57 and 58 to you a little bit later. I'd remind you, first of all, of the fact. And then I'd remind you, second, of the cause of this offense. And third, I'd remind you of the result of this offense. And they were offended in Jesus. First, the fact. It's a sad fact, and I would that I could just overlook it and discount it and forget it, but I can't do that. It's a fact. It's a fact recorded in the Bible that the neighbors of our Lord were offended with him. That the relatives of our Lord were offended in him. That the leaders of the city of Nazareth of Galilee were offended because of the Savior, a fact that I can't overlook. Now I want to bring that fact down to 1973, 1974. I wonder if there aren't many people in Greenville and in South Carolina, like these Nazarene neighbors of Jesus and Joseph and Mary, who likewise are offended in him. It's an astounding thing. When you get out in public, you can talk about religion all you want to and nobody will get offended. You can talk about God all you want to and nobody will become offended. You can talk about going to church all you want to and nobody will ever become offended. But when you begin to talk about Jesus Christ, God's virgin born, only begotten son of God who died vicariously upon an old rugged cross to keep you out of hell, men say, well, I tell you, I'll see you later. I've got to go. And they get offended at that. Now that's strange. 
if I had no other reason to believe that there was a devil, but that one reason would be sufficient enough. Only the devil could cause people to feel toward Jesus like some people do. And they were offended in him. I don't understand how, humanly speaking, how a person could become offended at Jesus of Nazareth. He never robbed a bank. He never ravished a woman. He never spoke an unkind word. He never stole a single item in his life. He never committed one transgression of God's law, one single sin in the span of his life. He went about doing good, opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears, cleansing the lepers and healing the sick and raising the dead. And yet they hated him without a cause and were offended at his name. You and I sit in this church building today and we sing Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And we sing, oh, how I love Jesus. And the people pass by and say, you're a bunch of nitwits, you're crazy. Nobody loves the Lord anymore. How can a man love the Lord? Why ought a man love the Lord? How blinded they are. And they were offended in him. Now I want to say to you today, and I think I speak for our church, the most 99% possibly of our congregation when I say that I am not offended in him. I want to give testimony for myself and for our congregation that he's more than my heart ever fancied that he could be. And I love to stand with this congregation and sing, Ferris, Lord Jesus. Rose of Sharon, bright and morning star, everlasting father, prince of peace, king of kings and lord of lords, counsel of mighty God, star out of Jacob, Jesus, Savior, my Savior. I'm not offended in him. Now, if that's treason, you make the most of it. If it's a crime to love the Lord Jesus Christ, then we at Tabernacle plead guilty of that crime. And they were offended in him, the fact. But I want you to note, second, the cause. Why were they offended at Jesus? What, he, what he, had he done? Had he spoken an untruth in their synagogue? Had he taught a doctrine that was not scriptural in the synagogue? Had he departed from the ancient scrolls of the Old Testament? No, sir. If there ever was a fundamental Bible believer and Bible preacher, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He built no new doctrine. Of course not. He recognized Isaiah and the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He said, Moses wrote to me. And I believe Jesus, I reverence the writings of Moses and respected the writings of Moses. All the law of God he respected and obeyed. Why in the world would anybody be offended at him? He was not an expense to anybody. He ate corn out of the field. He slept out in the woods. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests. The son of man hath no place to lay his head. He was a charge to no man. Why would a person be offended at that kind of a savior? That's the devil causing people to be offended at Jesus. Now why? First, because of his wisdom. In verse number 54, the Bible tells me they were astounded. And amazed and they said, where did he learn it? Where did he get it? They were offended by that wisdom that was greater than their wisdom. And down beneath that is the terrible reality we call jealousy. Here's a crowd of people 
that allowed jealousy of one of their own sons, so to speak, humanly speaking, one of their own native sons, to say the least, they allowed jealousy to destroy their confidence in him. And because of his supernatural wisdom, they were offended at the Savior. Second, they were offended by his power. Verse 54 again reminds me that he had done many mighty works. And the other rabbis in Nazareth didn't have that power. But the Savior had it. And those Nazarene people became offended at the Lord because of his mighty power. And then they were offended also because of his lowly birth. Why they said, this is the carpenter's son. Is not Mary his mother yet with us? He's got four brothers still running around the streets of Nazareth. He's got two sisters. They're all with us. What a lowly birth this boy has. And now he stands here in the synagogue handling the prophecy of Isaiah as an authority, as a veteran. And they were offended because of his lowly birth. If it had been one of the sons of the leaders in Israel, one of the sons of the rabbis, or one of the sons of the priests, they wouldn't have been so offended. But here's a nobody, so to speak, that God is using. God is endowed with wisdom. God is endowed with power. And it didn't sit well with the, uh, the uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy down at Nazareth. And so they said, uh, we can't accept him. And they became offended at him because of his lowly birth. Now, I want you to note the result, and this is a tragic thing, the result of this offense. In verse number 57, I read, and they were offended to him, but watch what the Lord said. When he saw their offense, when he recognized that they were offended in him, Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Now, you know what the Lord is saying by that, uh, that statement. He says, when I go down to Jerusalem, I'm respected as a prophet. When I teach in other areas, I'm respected as a rabbi. But when I come up here to, to Nazareth where I was born, and read up rather, I'm not respected. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and among his own people in his own house. And what a truthful statement that is. And that was what I was trying to warn our members at Tabernacle about a moment ago. Uh, in failing to recognize the potential that may lie uncovered, or covered rather, in the young people of our congregation. There's not an adult man in this building wise enough to reveal the potential that this church has in our youth and our young people. Don't try to reveal it. You don't have wisdom enough to do that. Now, if God ra raises up out of our congregation some little old sandy-headed lad and uses that boy in a great way, don't you dare begin to say, well, his mom and daddy is still with us. Don't you fail to receive the blessing of having a prophet come from our midst. Now, that's the result. They lost the blessing of a prophet being read up in their midst. Now, to me, that's a tragic loss. That's an unredeemable loss to lose a prophet read up in our midst. Now, I'll illustrate with Brother J. Harold Smith. I remember some of the old ones in the church remember when Brother J. Harold Smith started.
one of the few preachers I've ever known of that started off uh, with a tremendous ministry. I mean, just right off, right off tremendous ministry. Dynamic personality, uh, Brother J. Harold Smith. But he hadn't been preaching long until the powers to be, both religious powers and uh, civic powers and financial powers, right here in our own beloved city of Greenville, turned their thumbs down on him and began to oppress him and begin to charge him. They were offended with him. And I mean, I, I expect, and, and I could use Oliver Green that did the same thing to him. Both these men started preaching before I did. But they did the same thing to Dr. Green. But uh, I, speaking about J. Harold Smith, they turned their, their, their thumbs down on him. The religious leaders to be of that day soon soured on Brother J. Harold Smith. And there, there were dozens of churches that still are in Greenville that wouldn't spit on him if he was on fire. They hate him. Churches in Greenville. Now, not all. We don't. And uh, some of the other churches round about certainly don't hate Brother J. Harold Smith or Oliver Green either one. We love them and believe in them. But you wouldn't have to go far in any direction to find pastors and churches that despise the name of J. Harold Smith or Oliver Green or Bob Jones. Now, as far as I'm concerned, when you crucify a prophet that God raises up in our midst, we've suffered unredeemable loss as a community. And as far as I'm concerned, if God ever raised up a prophet out of Greenville County, he raised one up when he raised up J. Harold Smith and uh, Oliver Green and, and Bob Jones University. And we're the loser. This county, this city is the loser in not respecting a man like these men and others that I could name actually are. Now that's folly, that's, that's foolish. When God raises up a prophet, sets before him an open door and gives him power and uses him uh, in a spectacular way and then for the city fathers uh, to whisper about him and to slander him and hinder him and, and try to stop him is crazy. That's foolish stuff. That's spiritual suicide. And Nazareth of Galilee lost the blessing of a prophet in their midst. And the day came when they would love to have had the blessing of prophet Jesus in their midst, but they lost that. Then the second thing they lost is in verse number 58. He did not many mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Isn't that something? Now Jesus did a lot of mighty works in fact, in the next chapter, down at Capernaum, he's going to feed 5,000 people. I want to preach about that tonight. That's a mighty work, believe me. And everywhere he went, he did mighty work. You know where he performed his first miracle? In Cana of Galilee. And Cana of Galilee is about five miles from Nazareth. wonder why he didn't perform that first miracle in Nazareth. So far as we know, as far as the record of the Bible goes, he performed no miracles in Nazareth of Galilee. I can't recall off the cuff one single miracle our Lord performed in his hometown. Not a one. And the first of all of his miracles was performed five miles out of town in Canaan. And most of his miracles were performed down at the Sea of Galilee about 15 or 20 miles away from Nazareth. And he did no mighty works in Nazareth. 
because of their mighty, or because of their unbelief. Now, my friend, you can see what you want to, but Nazareth needed Jesus. Jesus didn't especially need them, but they needed him. They would admit it then. They were too proud to admit it then. And I expect some of them may be too proud now. Did you know that had it not been for Jesus, Nazareth would be a forgotten village in our day. I've been to Nazareth five times and, and uh, it's not a big place. Nazareth, I would guess to be about the size of uh, easily maybe a Greer, about the size of Greer maybe, maybe not that large. And uh, it's a little winding streets, it's marketplace, uh, it's narrow and dirty. Its buildings are old and, and uh, outdated. Or a few lovely buildings on the outskirts. One great big cathedral in the middle of the city built by the Roman Catholics uh, at the spot where they said Joseph and Mary lived. But had not Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth of Galilee, that church would not be there. And a lot of other things that's in Nazareth today would not be there. And chances are Nazareth would have been like Bethesda and Jehorin extinct had not Jesus been read up there. If any village ever needed the ministry of Jesus, Nazareth needed it. But they were offended. They didn't like him. They said his mother's still with us and his brothers are still on the streets around here and his daughters are still with us, his sisters rather, and nothing good can come out of that house. Why his dad is a carpenter. They needed Jesus, but they were offended. And because of their unbelief, when Jesus got ready to perform his miracles, he went five miles out of town and performed his first one in Cana and never performed one miracle, to my knowledge, in Nazareth, his hometown. Now, that's the, that's the result of being offended at Jesus. Now, my friend, right now, you may say, well, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, and I don't need old-time religion. But you're playing the part of folly God doesn't need you, that's for sure. But you need God, that also is for sure. And I beg that not a one of you would become offended at the Savior. Recognize him for what he is and who he is. And bow your knee before him and confess him with your tongue that he's God to the glory of God the Father. And join this happy company of the redeemed as we make our way on this pilgrimage to heaven and to glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, we come again to give testimony to the fact that we believe that Jesus is all that he claimed to be, the very Son of God. And we love thee, Lord Jesus, today. We're not ashamed of thee. We're not offended in thee. Many things about you we don't understand, but we believe that thou art indeed the virgin-born Son of Mary our Lord and our Savior who died on the cross to save us from the ruin and ravage of sin. All heads are bowed, every eye is closed, every head is bowed. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.